One of the hardest decisions I ever made was leaving Brooklyn, specifically leaving my Brooklyn apartment. I was well into my 30s when I could finally afford that pinnacle of adulthood, living alone. So I rose to the challenge. I made this place my own. I studied feng shui. Well, I googled about it. Got all new furniture. I bought art. Art! When I was done, this apartment looked good. Like something out of one of those home makeover reality shows. Not like a museum where it felt like you couldn't touch anything. It was cozy. I hosted poker nights and D&D nights. I helped out friends who needed a place to crash. Like a samurai wielding his finest weapon, I wielded that apartment with pride. Which is why abandoning that apartment was like sacrificing the only good thing I had in an otherwise disappointing life. But when I abandoned that apartment, I felt like I didn't have a choice. That story, a little later. I'm David Sanson, and I'm a loser. In each episode, you'll hear a new reason why. So this kind of works out because this is a podcast about losers. People who ran for president of the United States and lost. In this episode, our first episode, I'm going to tell you about a man who was widely known in his day as one of the greatest orators, the greatest speakers in the history of American politics. His ability to craft a speech and then captivate an audience, these were his finest weapons. But in using these weapons, he did not do what many expected, cut a clean path to the White House. Instead, he turned the blade on himself, cut his own throat by one day giving a speech which guaranteed he would never become president. And he would do this because he too felt he didn't have a choice. This is the story of a man who otherwise spent decades trying to become president. This is the story of fame as a double-edged sword. This is the story of Daniel Webster. It was Independence Day, the 4th of July, in the year 1812, when about 400 people squeezed into a brand new church in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. They came to hear a man deliver a speech. They did not expect to witness the birth of an 1800s rock star. The Mick Jagger of his time. I mean, he was, he was a performer. This is Joel Richard Paul. I am a professor of constitutional and international law at the University of California College of Law in San Francisco. He wrote about this event in his book, Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. Okay, so it's 1812. After the parade and other events marking the 4th of July occasion, when the audience then saw this 30-year-old local lawyer, Daniel Webster, get up to speak, they were struck by a few things. First, his unusual appearance. It's not just that he was tall. He had a very big head and large features and a very pronounced forehead and these burning dark eyes. Um, he was also unusually dark-skinned. He was, he was olive-complected, which for a New Englander was unusual. In college, they started calling him Black Dan because of his eyes and his darker-than-normal-for-a-white-guy complexion. This made him just a very kind of mesmerizing figure before this audience that didn't necessarily know who he was. But beyond his looks, Webster had another weapon in his arsenal, Bending a crowd to his will, with subtlety. He would be looking down at his feet and and appear kind of shy and reticent at first. And he would talk in a kind of stage whisper. So everybody had to quiet down and lean forward to hear him speak. And then he would slowly lift his enormous head of his up. And the voice would begin to fill the room. The voice arguably his most potent weapon, rang out effortlessly. He never seemed to sort of have to strain his voice. Um, It was very resonant, a full voice, often compared to a church organ. Webster's voice resonated as he spoke, without notes, for an hour. In his speech, Webster was condemning the War of 1812. Now, if you're like me, you barely remember what the War of 1812 was about. But the main thing for us to know now is that, one, this war had just started, like it was barely two weeks old. And two, the war was deeply unpopular in this part of the country, New England. So between Webster's anti-war message and his powerful delivery, 
the audience was hooked. The immediate reaction was one of tremendous excitement. I mean, people in general, when they attended a Webster speech, would describe the experience as being hypnotic or mesmerizing. You know, they'd walk out of a speech and they'd feel transformed by it. Uh, I mean, his next sort of great moment of oratory, he gave a speech on the anniversary of the arrival of the pilgrims at Plymouth. At that speech, people described how their heads were bursting afterward. A history professor at Harvard uh, talks about how he was afraid to come close to Daniel Webster because he thought he might be on fire. What made you want to write about him? I wanted to write about Daniel Webster to kind of rehabilitate him. Daniel Webster was such a principal figure in the politics of the first half of the 19th century. His reputation was so vast that uh, Daniel Webster was walking down the street anywhere in America, he would be recognized. Yet he hasn't really been given much attention by historians. And he's generally kind of viewed with suspicion. For reasons we'll get into later. He was just known throughout the world as the greatest orator of the English language. That's a reputation. Webster had the looks. He certainly had the voice. It seemed the only thing he lacked was McDagger's dance moves. But even without the added benefit of those smoldering eyes and church organ delivery, the words themselves were powerful. His speech was transcribed, copied, and republished in newspapers throughout New England. And those words were so effective at capturing the anti-war mood at the time that when the Federalist Party, the anti-War of 1812 party, when they recognized Webster's achievement by nominating him for Congress a few months later, he won. He was 31 years old when he walked into the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. to begin his political career. He was 68 years old when, in a single act in that same building, he ended his political career. How and why does a politician fall on his own sword? Let's find out. Daniel Webster grew up in the late 1700s, phew, in the small town of Salisbury, New Hampshire. He was the second youngest of eight siblings. Daniel's father, Ebenezer, was one of the original founders of the town. He was a farmer. He was poor. He was also well-regarded as a natural leader, serving at different times as town clerk, coroner, judge. When the American Revolution broke out in the 1770s, Ebenezer commanded troops in battle, even briefly served under General George Washington. In 1781, the British surrendered to George Washington, effectively ending the American Revolution. And three months later, on January 18, 1782, Daniel Webster was born. His mother was Abigail. His father called her Nabby. Others called her a spinster because she was unusually old when she married Ebenezer. She was 37. She also stood out because of her intellect. According to Webster, she's the one who first taught him how to read. And Daniel spent a lot of time reading. He was a sickly child, often too frail to work the family farm. But he could memorize just about anything. He was a quick study, naturally bright. So in 1796, when Daniel was 14, his parents enrolled him in Phillips Academy at Exeter, 60 miles away. Webster stood out at Phillips, surrounded by privileged rich kids, all of them better prepared academically and socially. This is what biographer Robert Remini said about Webster then, quote, It was reported that he knew no more about holding a knife and fork than a cow does about holding a spade. Also, unlike his peers, he dressed like a poor farm boy, because he was. But the day would soon come when Webster would reveal his secret weapon, public speaking. It was commonplace for boys at that time to have to memorize and recite, and they'd have to stand up before an audience and recite. These recitations were a feature at Phillips Academy, so Webster got to work, memorizing, rehearsing, sit-ups, hitting the heavy bag, your classic training montage. Then the big day comes, his name is called, the music swells. And he froze, he couldn't say anything, he was terrified. It was such an embarrassing, humiliating experience for him. It just felt terrible. A few months later, he withdrew from Exeter. Why is unclear. Financial reasons, health reasons, embarrassment. 
what was clear. He was determined to master the art of public speaking. Cue the next training montage. Once home, Webster studied with a local minister who tutored him in Latin and Greek and let him use his personal library. And a year later, at the age of 15, Webster passed his entrance exam at nearby Dartmouth College. And over the next four years at Dartmouth, he transformed. He began dressing more fashionably, affording his new style by starting what would become a lifelong habit, borrowing money. But crucially, he joined a student literary society at Dartmouth, like a social club that hosted debates. And that's how he began learning the finer points of public speaking, honing and sharpening his arsenal. And he won all sorts of prizes at Dartmouth. He wasn't a particularly outstanding student, but he was a very gifted speaker. Webster graduated from Dartmouth in August 1801. He was 19. Webster returned home and began apprenticing at a local law office. He wasn't enthusiastic about being a lawyer, but it seemed to be the best way to avoid the poverty of his childhood and finance his new preferred wardrobe. By 1808, Webster was married and had his own legal practice in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Portsmouth, where just a few years later, Webster gave that anti-war of 1812 speech we heard about earlier, the speech that launched him into Congress. You know how at a music festival, there's the main stage for the major performances. And then there are all the secondary stages. At this particular point, Daniel Webster, the congressman, was not a main stage act. Believe it or not, his main act was happening just a few feet below his congressional day job in a lower floor of the Capitol building. What was down there? The Supreme Court. This was before they had their own place. It was 1814, about a year into his first term as a congressman, when Webster began maybe one of the greatest side hustles of any politician, Supreme Court super lawyer. He very much loved being an advocate before the Supreme Court, and he made a lot of money doing that. What do you want? The guy had expensive tastes. But just to give you a sense of how this worked, on some days, Webster would deliver a speech in Congress, then head downstairs to argue in front of the Supreme Court in his spare time. And by all accounts, the guy was exceptional working on over 200 Supreme Court cases over his lifetime and winning about half of those. And it's a wonder the court didn't start selling tickets, because... Before Webster, there wasn't much of an audience. The cases that Webster argued drew big audiences. He was known for having argued some of the most important Supreme Court decisions. When when Webster argued the Dartmouth College case... Yeah, that Dartmouth, his old school. The members of the court, the, the, the Supreme Court justices themselves, wept tears, according to uh, Justice Joseph Story, as they did several other times when Webster argued before the court. Are judges allowed to weep? <laughs> <laughs> I guess if any judge can weep, it's the, it's the justices, I guess. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Webster's Supreme Court cases may have gotten the most attention, but he worked all kinds of cases, making so much money as a lawyer, much more than he made in Congress, that he gave up his congressional seat, deciding not to run for re-election in 1816. When that term ended in 1817, he moved to Boston. He got involved a bit in local Massachusetts politics, But mostly, he practiced law full-time, routinely commuting back to Washington, D.C. to keep the tears flowing at the Supreme Court. But this semi-retirement from politics didn't last. By this point, the 18-teens into the early 1820s, the Federalists were waning. Again, this was Webster's political party. The Federalists were especially hurting in Boston, where there was some recent party infighting. The party knew they needed a rock star like Webster to help stop the political bleeding. They also knew Webster was reluctant to take the pay cut. So in late 1822, when a Boston congressman announced he wouldn't be running for re-election, the Federalists unanimously chose Webster to replace him. While Webster was out of town, when he learned what happened, Webster agreed to accept their nomination only if certain conditions were met certain financial conditions. Spending four to six months out of the year in Washington as a congressman would mean less money coming into Webster's legal practice. He wanted the Boston business community to cover the gap. They agreed. And so Daniel Webster was finally convinced to return to Congress in 1823. 
And you know, for the rest of his life, off and on, hundreds of business leaders would continue to fund his increasingly glamorous lifestyle. And many of those constituents who gave him a lot of money were people who had business in Washington. And Webster, to a large extent, did their bidding. You know, that would be of concern today, but in those days, it was more accepted, and Webster overdid it. By now, Webster was used to wielding his weapons, his looks, his voice, his intellect, for his own benefit. Financial aid from his constituents, high-powered clients for his law practice, and other pleasures. He had affairs with numerous women, some of them uh, very notorious. He had extravagant lifestyle. He had a huge farm in Marshfield. Marshfield is near Boston. I believe it had something like a hundred buildings on it. He had a privately stocked lake. He loved this sort of life of being this sort of country squire and sort of a kind of an aristocratic manner that he ran there. It was almost like a northern plantation. Webster was all about the wine, the women, and the money. And those three things got him into some trouble. The troubles would come as Webster's political profile continued to rise. Webster's second stint in the House of Representatives was from 1823 to 1827. He would have stayed longer, but in 1827, Massachusetts sent him to the U.S. Senate. Webster wasn't sure going to the Senate was the right move. By this point, he had a lot of power in the House. In our earlier music festival analogy, Webster the congressman was now on par with Webster the Supreme Court super lawyer as a main stage act. The Senate was still part of Congress, but moving there was kind of like starting over. He'd be a freshman senator. Webster, like all of us, couldn't see the future. He couldn't know that the Senate would be his most important stage, the pinnacle of his rock stardom. Nor could he foresee that the Senate would bring about his tragic climax. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In the fall of 1829, during a trip to New York City, Webster met his soon-to-be second wife, Caroline Leroy. His first wife, Grace, had recently died of cancer. Leroy and Webster didn't waste time, getting married just weeks later in December of 1829. Some called it a marriage of convenience. She was drawn to his fame as a prominent orator and statesman, he was drawn to her clout and her money. She just so happened to be the daughter of a rich merchant with a lineage dating back to New York's early settlers. Someone of her wealth and connections could prove to be an asset when running for president, which was already on Daniel Webster's mind. And now's a good time for me to clarify something. While I will touch on Webster's various attempts at running for president, these attempts are actually not the crucial part of his story. The real drama I find in his presidential loser narrative centers around two speeches. Two speeches 20 years apart, Webster delivered not on the campaign trail, but, as I hinted at earlier, in the Senate. This is crucial, which means it's time to introduce Daniel Holt. I am the assistant historian at the U.S. Senate Historical Office in Washington, D.C. He'll be helping us tell the rest of Webster's story along with Joel Richard Paul. In the Senate, Daniel Webster the rock star became Daniel Webster the legend. And it happened as a result of the first of these two speeches, an address he gave on the floor of the Senate in 1830. And no joke, this is considered by many to be the greatest speech ever delivered in the history of Congress. The title of this speech, well, it already tells a story. This famous speech is called the Second Reply to Hain, which would make them maybe ask, well... What was the first reply to Hayne? And who the heck is Hayne? Webster's second reply to Hayne was the climax to a back and forth with 37-year-old Senator Robert Hayne from South Carolina. Now, I need to give you some background here, so hang with me for just a moment. I promise it's going to pay off. 1800s America, right? We've got the North, more of a manufacturing economy, and the South, more of an agricultural economy, and the expanding West new land waiting to get settled. The North, the South, and the West argued in Congress. They had competing interests. One issue was tariffs, taxes. Another issue was around restricting the sale of Western land. Now, influencing this argument was a man named John C. Calhoun. John C. Calhoun was the current vice president of the United States. Calhoun was also from South Carolina, like Senator Hayne. 
And about a year before this particular debate, Calhoun had circulated a theory. He believed that nobody could force his state to pay a tariff or abide by a law it doesn't agree with. His theory, called nullification, came down to two essential points. One, within their borders, states can refuse to enforce a law they don't like. And two, Daniel Holt. If push came to shove between the federal government and the states, that a state could secede from the union if they had to. A state could secede, just up and leave if they didn't like a particular tax or a particular policy around land sales. Mind you, this was three decades before the Civil War, when seceding states became an actual thing. To Daniel Webster and many others, this was a radical theory. Webster's view, the idea that informed all his speeches and the cases he argued at the Supreme Court, basically his overall political philosophy, when he wasn't taking money from a wealthy donor to pretend otherwise, was that it was essential to the prosperity and safety of the states, that's a quote, to stick together. So states ignoring federal laws, even leaving the Union, this was terrible to Webster. Okay, enough background. Now we bring this back to the Senate and Webster's debate with Hayne. One day in January of 1830, Webster walks into the Senate. Kind of just to check in, see what was going on. He's got a bunch of court papers under his arm because he's literally just coming from his side hustle, the Supreme Court downstairs. He walks in and he catches the beginning of Hayne giving a speech. And in the course of the speech, Senator Hayne makes the argument that the North is trying to impoverish the South. It's the North against the rest of us. When Hayne finishes, Webster says, my turn. So he gives his first reply to Hayne. And he does it in a very clever way. He wants to basically entrap Hayne into defending the theories of John C. Calhoun. Aha! John C. Calhoun. Nullification. It's all coming together. So Webster lays his trap for Hayne by saying this. The reason the South is poor has nothing to do with the North. It's because you guys are addicted to slavery. Slavery. Slavery was the elephant in the room, underlying all these regional debates. Slavery is the engine behind the South's agricultural economy, an engine the South wants to expand into these new territories in the West. Webster knew his statement about slavery would rile up South Carolina Senator Hayne, and oh boy. This enrages Hayne, and so Hayne comes back at him and gives this whole speech defending the right of secession and the idea that the South can nullify federal law. In other words... Hayne openly proclaims Calhoun's nullification theory. And that's exactly where Webster wants to put him. The table was set. Webster could now give what he thought might be the biggest speech of his life, to deploy his full oratorical arsenal to attack nullification and make a grand statement about America. He will deliver this legendary second reply to Hayne the next day. Plenty of time to drum up an audience. When it is known that Webster's going to give this response to Hayne, everybody in Washington wants to be there. How did people know? Would it have been word of mouth or newsboys running through the streets? Webster's going to speak. Webster's going to speak, I tell you. It was probably a little bit of both. Journalists spreading the word that they knew this was coming. Word of mouth from uh, among society in Washington, D.C., from those who had attended the previous sessions when Webster walked in on the given day to make his speech, the place was packed. Every inch of the of that small chamber was filled with people. The senators are standing in the back, they're out in the in the lobby, people are crowding. The galleries behind where the senators sat were filled to capacity. Margaret Bayard Smith, a political writer, noted there were about 300 women in attendance. And many of those women were sitting in senators' desks. At their desks, this would happen sometimes that the senators would give up their seats to women. I mean, the place is mobbed. And Webster knows this, you know, and he shows up late and he, he stands up and he gives this oration which goes he on. He showed up late? He sh- Sorry, he showed up late because he, for effect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he wants, he wants to make sure he wants to build the crowd. Observers noted how casual Webster was when he walked in. Like this huge crowd was unremarkable. 
Oh, and by the way, Vice President John Calhoun is presiding in the officer's chair to hear what is essentially a, a full-throated rebuttal of nullification and all of these things. When it was time for him to speak, Webster's casual attitude shifted. Now he looks directly at the crowd, takes it in. Multiple writers said he was like a gladiator. He meets their gaze, opens his mouth. And he gives this speech for two days. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so he does a, a few hours on one day, uh, and then they break in the evening, and he comes back and gives it uh, again the following day. And it is an unbelievable oration. Everybody is frantically trying to copy down his words. And it is a point-by-point repudiation of everything that John C. Calhoun has written and said about the power of states to nullify federal law and to secede from the Union. And because it's happening in the backdrop of all of these tensions that I talked about with South Carolina and these real threats of nullification, these real threats of disunion, his speech is even more powerful uh, and distills these ideas in a way that had not been before. And Webster closes with this famous line, liberty and union now and forever, one and inseparable. This was the line that would seal the legend. And the significance of that line has to be understood. Webster was an opponent, was an outspoken opponent of slavery. And when he talks about liberty, he understands that a third of Americans are not free. They are enslaved. And he wants it known that the Union is the vehicle through which slavery will ultimately end. Observers of the speech talk about how he had kept the audience so transfixed <laughs> that when it was over, there was a stillness and so almost a silence. Almost. There was the angry gavel of John C. Calhoun ending the session. But even that wasn't enough to break the trance. People walk out of the Senate in a daze. You know, and it's been snowing in Washington and it's cold and it's icy and no one seems to mind because they're just transported by, by Webster's words. Okay, I can imagine being transported by Prince performing at the Super Bowl halftime show in 2007. But a speech? Can a Senate speech really be that good? Webster certainly had an element of self-promotion in this and in sh making sure that people understood that he saw it as one of the best speeches. Um, but uh, to be fair to him, there were plenty of observers who also um, believed it to be one of the most important speeches. And I think, again, that's because of the substance of the speech was so important. It articulated an idea of the American nation in a way that I don't think had been um, articulated on the floor of, the, of either the House or the Senate prior to that time. The political divisions didn't suddenly end because of this one speech. A civil war would still happen 30 years later. But even Southerners agreed it was a hell of a speech. When Webster finished, a Southern senator said to him, I think you had better die now and rest your fame on that speech. Senator Hayne reportedly overheard this, and he responded, a man who can make such speeches as that ought never to die. In a private letter a couple years prior, Webster had explained his secret to giving a good speech. He wrote, He is an orator that can make me think as he thinks and feel as he feels. Judging by the conviction of that first crowd in Portsmouth, the tears of the Supreme Court's justices, and the reverence of the observers of his second reply to Hayne, Webster knew how to hit his mark. Which begs the question, why is he the subject of this podcast? Why, when it came to running for president, is Daniel Webster a loser? The answer, after the break. You might be wondering, why did I start this podcast series with Daniel Webster? Well because of my Brooklyn apartment. And the fire. It was a morning fire, and I'm not a morning person, so I was woken up by the sirens and the banging on my door. My first reaction was annoyance. While I loved my apartment, the building was a hassle. False alarms, broken elevators. So I grudgingly threw on some sweatpants and brushed my teeth, 
mentally preparing myself to stand on the sidewalk for a few minutes before crawling back into bed. Then I felt this burning tickle in my lungs. So I grabbed my laptop, my most valuable item. When I made it downstairs and out into the street, I turned back to take it all in. My building, surrounded by half a dozen fire trucks, a thick pillar of smoke rising off the roof. I didn't stand and watch the whole fire happen. I'm not a facing-things-head-on kind of guy when it comes to tragedy. I spent the next couple hours at a nearby coffee shop, distracting myself with as much of the Internet as my laptop could serve up. Part of me wanted to stay in that coffee shop forever, but the chairs were very uncomfortable. So eventually, inevitably, I went back and faced my fate. The fire trucks were gone. The building was still standing. Many of the apartments were untouched, but my apartment was ruined mostly water and structural damage. They let me back in, briefly, to save a few more precious items. But I had to let go of everything else. When I called my mother that night from a hotel and told her what had happened, she told me to come home, back to Kansas City. But I shot that down quick. I mean, I'd been living in New York my whole adult life. I had fought through setback after setback to survive there. I couldn't admit defeat. Not now. There had to be another way. A week later, sitting on my budget hotel bed, courtesy of the Red Cross, I realized there was no other way. During the months it would take to fix my place, I'd have nowhere else to stay. I didn't have family in the area. I had friends, but they had partners, roommates, no space for me. Another option was finding a new apartment, but I was unemployed, which is a whole other story. A third option, go to Kansas City, then come back in six months, get all new furniture, and start over expensive. And honestly, I just couldn't live there again. When I closed my eyes, all I could see was the watery wreck that used to be my home. So I opened my eyes, opened my laptop sitting on the bed, and bought a one-way ticket to Kansas City. In my mind, I was sacrificing the promise of my future and retreating to my past. And that's why I started with Daniel Webster. My triumph, that apartment, became inseparable from my downfall. Webster's triumph, his words and how he said them, led to his great downfall. And telling you his story might help me make sense of my own, help me win at losing. So, where were we? After that 1830s Senate speech that made Webster a legend, his second reply to Hain, more and more people began to speak highly of his future. By now, Webster had earned a new nickname, Godlike Daniel. Well, what could be more godlike, for some, than being president of the United States? And the next presidential election was right around the corner in 1832. The only hitch, Webster wasn't the favorite for his party's nomination in 1832. That distinction went to another notable politician, a senator from Kentucky named Henry Clay. Whoever got this nomination would go up against President Andrew Jackson, who was running for re-election in 1832. Webster thought he could beat Jackson. He didn't think Henry Clay could. So Webster wondered, do I snatch the nomination from Clay or try for a third-party nomination? And he sort of procrastinated too long. Again, author Joel Richard Paul. And Henry Clay, of course, got the nomination. And Clay lost to Andrew Jackson. So Webster looked to the next election, 1836, which was promising because Henry Clay decided not to run that year. So this time, Webster went for it. 1836 was probably the one legitimate time when he was actually, his name was on the ballot. The only problem? His wasn't the only name. By now, the Federalists were long gone, and Webster was a member of a new political party, the Whigs. But the Whigs in 1836 were disorganized. They ran different candidates in different parts of the country based on their local popularity. Webster assumed these other Whigs would drop out and throw their support to him once he entered the race. Then the Whigs could show a united front against their opponent that year, Martin Van Buren. That didn't happen. On election day, Martin Van Buren won, and Webster came in fourth in a five-way race. He felt humiliated. In the 1840s, Henry Clay ran again, which put Webster back in Clay's shadow. Neither of them would win the prize, but Henry Clay always seemed to be one step ahead of Webster in the elections of 1840, 1844, 1848. What do you make of Webster's repeated 
failed attempts to nail it, to, to get it, to become president? Well, I think that there's a, a, a few things going on. I mean, on a personal level, Webster is kind of a cold fish. He is arrogant. You know, he fits the godlike image. He thinks he's better than other people. He is very much an elitist. You know, he doesn't really make an effort at endearing himself to anybody. So he also has a problem appealing to the public. He lacks authenticity. He's a performer. He's an actor who likes the adoration of the crowd. And he he achieves that not by being homespun like Lincoln, not by being a kind of aw shucks guy like Henry Clay, but by being someone who is better than everybody else. And that's not what Americans are looking for in their political leaders. They're looking for authenticity. It feels almost like a contradiction on the one hand, these, these you know, we talked about his very sociable and extroverted uh, uh, personal life. But there's also this aloofness and this sort of holding himself above. Am I alone in seeing this as a contradiction or, or what do you make of that? Well, the way I, I sort of see it is, you know, if you think about uh, your celebrity rock stars today, um, they're not the kinds of people who would necessarily be uh, backslapping politicians. I mean, they're people who enjoy hanging out with other people in their social circle. Webster, for all of his eloquence and his brilliance, has no political instincts. He simply does not know how to put together a coalition. He doesn't. Andrew Jackson, uh, Martin Van Buren, uh, Henry Clay, these guys understood politics. Daniel Webster did not understand politics. This was evident at the 1848 Whig Convention, when Zachary Taylor won the party nomination to run for president that year. Henry Clay came in third, Webster a distant fourth. This now brings us to the climactic chapter in our story and the year 1850. Webster was in his late 60s, and the next election in 1852 was looking like his last real shot. But something happened in 1850 that would change Webster's destiny, and even his legacy. Okay, bear with me, just a little more background. After fighting a war with Mexico in the 1840s, the U.S. ended up with a bunch of new land, including, significantly, California. I say significantly because in 1848, we discovered California had gold. A lot of gold. Now there's more urgency to the debate about making the land of California into the state of California, formally admitting it into the Union, because people from all over the country, all over the world, were now flocking there. The place needed some kind of government and a means of collecting taxes and all that gold. So there's kind of a ticking clock, but also there's a problem. The problem with admitting California is at this point in time, there's an equal number of slave states and free states in the United States, which meant that there were equal numbers of senators from slave states and free states. California would upset the balance. And because California's proposed state constitution would ban slavery... There was the threat that the South would secede from the Union if California entered. There's that word again, secede. Tensions were rising over this California thing. We're talking literal fistfights between congressmen. And they couldn't just delay the decision. Again, the gold. Which is why just a few days after his 68th birthday, on a cold, snowy January evening in 1850, there was a knock on Daniel Webster's door. The unexpected visitor was a 72-year-old fellow senator, when he arrived, he was tired and coughing. He had just walked through a snowstorm. And of all the senators, of all the people to visit him on such a night, Webster was shocked that it was this one, Henry Clay. Webster and Clay were not buddies. They were rivals. And they didn't necessarily trust each other. But Clay comes to Webster and basically says, the union is threatened. We have to do something. I've come up with an idea for a compromise, and the compromise is complicated, but the, the heart of the compromise is we let California enter as a free state in exchange for the North promising to enforce the fugitive slave laws. Okay, what is this now? Fugitive slave laws? Well, these laws basically said escaped slaves must be returned to their owners. The initial law was passed way back in 1793 to enforce language in the original Constitution about this. 
Now, the North had a tradition of ignoring this law. Henry Clay thought if he could get the North to finally agree to enforce it, particularly a new, stronger fugitive slave law, that this would be so attractive to the South, they'd agree to admit California as a free state in exchange. Clay thought he could get the South on board. And he knew that the only way he could get the North to vote for it would be if Webster endorsed it. Because people looked to Webster as the voice of New England, the voice of the North. But Webster knows it's highly likely if he endorses this compromise and actually tells his fellow Northerners they have to get serious about returning slaves. He's cutting his own throat. But if he does nothing, the Union could be lost. Because by now, Webster was convinced the South wasn't bluffing about secession. There was literally a convention planned for later that year, in June of 1850, to at least consider secession if slavery were outlawed in the West. He knew he had to speak. He wasn't sure what to say. Meanwhile, that California gold is rushing. Tensions are boiling over in Congress. And Clay is looking to Webster to save the Union with the power of his words. And this is the setup to Webster's second dramatic speech, his fateful and fatal Senate speech on March 7, 1850. It is even a bigger crowd than for his second reply to Senator Hayne. So if uh, if you thought the chamber was crowded in 1830... Again, Senate historian Daniel Holt. It was getting even more so by 1850. Because uh, there's more states now, so more senators, more desks. Exactly. You would have had journalists trying to write down everything that he said in shorthand for publication later. Uh, you would have had women from Washington, D.C. society there who were diarists and wrote letters to people explaining what was going on in the in the Capitol during this time. And you would have had very much a crowd on the chamber floor itself. John C. Calhoun was there. He was a regular senator now, not presiding over the Senate as vice president like in 1830. And he was very sick. Three weeks later, he would die. But on this day, he had risen from his eventual deathbed to join the crowd in hearing what Daniel Webster had to say. A D.C. newspaper reported the atmosphere in the room was tense. Back in 1830, when Webster stood to give his legendary reply to Hayne, they said he was like a gladiator. Now, in 1850, he was like a samurai, serious, solemn. And he stands up and he starts speaking, and it's not clear what direction he's going in. But he turns to his colleagues in the North. And he says, when it comes to the fugitive slave issue, Northerners are wrong. And he points out that the Constitution is very clear that the North has an obligation to return the slaves. And he talks about the important legacy of our founding fathers and of the absolute necessity of preserving the Union at all costs. For some of his northern colleagues, these were shocking statements. But Webster was just getting started. He also turned and chastised Southerners for their increasing support for slavery, what, what had once been considered like a, an evil in the country that had to be endured. Southerners in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s began to talk about slavery as somehow a positive good. He went on to criticize all the talk among Southerners about secession, finding it repugnant. Observers noted how his burning eyes were fixed on Calhoun. This speech did not last two days, like his second reply to Hayne. It was a brisk three and a half hours. By the end, Webster was sweating. To some, this was a sign of his passion. To others, it was the mark of a guilty conscience for turning his back on the North. For while the speech did win some praise for Webster among northern moderates and even southerners. Many people, especially in Massachusetts, his constituents, who were very strong in anti-slavery forces, felt betrayed by him in this speech. Webster feared this would be the case. So it's tempting to view this speech as an act of pure martyrdom. Webster wielding his arsenal not for his own benefit, but for the sake of something greater, saving the Union. But his personal ambition was not so easily discarded. Despite the backlash, or perhaps in an effort to repair the backlash, Webster still held out hope that the self-inflicted wound of that speech was not lethal, that he could still be president. And this hope burned a little brighter in the summer of 1850, when a political shift occurred that no one predicted. That July, President Zachary Taylor died. When his vice president, Millard Fillmore, took the office, he appointed Webster to be his secretary of state. That's a good gig, 
often seen as a stepping stone to the presidency. And Millard Fillmore wasn't sure about re-upping, running in the next election. Maybe Webster's time had come. But here is where godlike Daniel's self-inflicted wound became politically deadly. Because when the Compromise of 1850 was eventually passed, and the new fugitive slave law went into effect, it was up to Webster to enforce it. I'll explain. Back then, there was no Justice Department, no FBI. It was the job of the Secretary of State to enforce federal laws. It was the job of Daniel Webster, Voice of the North, to ensure runaway slaves were sent back south. When a purported fugitive is arrested in Boston and put in manacles and is, and is going to be put on a slave ship and sent back to slavery, a mob forms and they free him and he escapes to Canada. And Webster feels that this makes him look like a hypocrite because here his, in his own native Boston, the law has been frustrated. So he decides with a vengeance that he is going to enforce the law with an iron fist. And he calls out the army to literally escort fugitive slaves to waiting slave ships in manacles. Ralph Waldo Emerson said after the Compromise of 1850 that liberty in the mouth of Daniel Webster is like the word love in the mouth of a courtesan. Webster did make one last shot for the White House in 1852. But by now, he was the rock star way past his prime. Out of nearly 300 delegates at that year's Whig Party convention, Webster never got more than 30 votes. He was, at this point, drinking very heavily. Um, His term as Secretary of State under Millard Fillmore was a disaster. He was falling apart. A few days after that convention... Webster attended Henry Clay's funeral. Then he went back to his grand estate in Marshfield to be with his wife, Caroline, and his one surviving child while his health deteriorated, partly from a recent head wound and partly due to cirrhosis of the liver after a lifetime of heavy drinking. On the early morning of October 24, 1852, Daniel Webster said his final words and died. He was 70. And like everyone else destined to be a part of this podcast, he was a failure, a disappointment, a loser. Or was he? It's funny because in the short term, right, the the Compromise of 1850 happens. So in the short term, you know, Webster's call for union is successful. And ironically, that is what made it possible to win the Civil War. Huh? Wait, what do you mean? Before this happened, most Northerners regarded slavery as something that occurred in a remote location that they really had no connection to. They had never seen slaves. They'd never seen what slavery was doing to people. They just sort of shrugged it off. But when you saw the enactment of slavery in the streets of Boston and in Buffalo and in in New York and other cities around the country, Americans were shocked. This shock drove public opinion in the North. In 1850, only 10% of Americans voted for that year's anti-slavery political party, a third party called the Free Soil Party. But just a few years later, a coalition of ex-Free Soilers and ex-Whigs formed a bigger party opposed to slavery's expansion, the Republican Party. And in 1860, they elected a president, Abraham Lincoln. Which leads to the other reason Webster might have been key to winning the Civil War. And this one, I gotta admit, kind of mind-blowing. Webster's great speeches, his second reply to Hayne, his March 7th speech, and all of his speeches that had celebrated the virtue of union, those speeches had been excerpted and included in the readers that children routinely read and had to memorize in school. So everybody in America who was literate had read from these readers. And as a child, you were required to stand up in school and recite from memory excerpts of Webster's speeches extolling the virtues of the Union. So his speeches were were sort of formative for the the generation of school children that would grow up to, to fight in the Civil War. Absolutely. 
And not just the men who fought in the Civil War, but Abraham Lincoln himself. He said Webster was the greatest orator of his time. And some of the lines that we all think of as being Lincoln's, like when Lincoln said that we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Well, he didn't have to say he was quoting Daniel Webster because everyone in his audience had read that line when they were school children. They all knew that was Daniel Webster speaking, not, not Abraham Lincoln. Webster had that kind of impact on the generation of leaders and, and soldiers who fought and won the Civil War and preserved the Union. It's interesting how it's easier for, you know, other people to see that, uh, but difficult for people to see that in themselves. I think that's the nature of one's personal tragedies. We see our own tragedy. We can't see the larger picture. When I was sitting with my laptop in that budget hotel after the fire, buying a one-way plane ticket back to Kansas City, I was convinced I didn't have a future that I was giving up, retreating to my past. I couldn't see the full picture. I didn't know that while stuck in a Kansas City suburb with nothing to do, that out of that desperation and boredom, one day I would open my laptop and start making a podcast, a project I couldn't share with you if the fire hadn't happened. So the next time you or I feel like a loser, let's think about Daniel Webster and try to remember his final words on his deathbed. I still live. Special thanks to Daniel Holt, assistant historian at the U.S. Senate Historical Office in Washington, D.C. By the way, if you go to the Capitol Visitor Center in D.C. and sign up for a tour, you can see the original Senate chamber where Webster spoke. It's been fully restored. Minus the carpet stains, minus the noise, and uh, minus the, the haranguing journalists. Special thanks also to Professor Joel Richard Paul, from the University of California College of Law in San Francisco. He's the author of Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. And in case you thought we'd covered everything in his book... No, I mean, I wrote a 500-page book, David. Well, sure, of course. (laughs) Yes, yes, of course. How much time do you have? (laughs) Check out Indivisible for more stories about Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun, and many others. This podcast was written and produced by me, with dramaturgy by Dr. Shane Bro, invaluable assistance by Brian Waddell, and several others who provided their feedback and sorely needed emotional support. Music by Artlist. If you enjoyed the podcast, give us a follow, leave a review, and spread the word. Just telling one or two of your friends really helps. I mean it. This is David Sazen encouraging you to hug the biggest loser in your life, even if it's you. <laughs>